Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Recovery Corner. I am your host, Candice Rose, and today is a special episode because it is the season two finale of Recovery Corner. And I also have to announce that this will be my final episode as host of Recovery Corner. Uh, I have been um, moving on to a different opportunity that I was given. uh, And I'm so sad to leave YPR and Recovery Corner behind. uh, But I'm really excited for the opportunity that I have and the opportunity that other folks may have in my departure. So uh, while this is the finale of season two. YPR is going to take a little break from the podcast and is looking to launch back up in the fall with a new host and probably a new format too. So uh, don't lose touch. Definitely stay tuned to Recovery Corner um, and we'll have some new and exciting content for you uh, probably around National Recovery Month in September. So definitely stay tuned for that. Um, And yeah, I just want to thank all my listeners for for tuning in uh, this last year and two seasons. So with that said, I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, Today at Recovery Corner, I have invited two of YPR's very own chapter leads. They are the Rainbow Recovery Leaders, Miss Catherine Sherman and Amanda Lunsford. And these two are spearheading YPR's efforts to create uh, more inclusive spaces of recovery for the LGBTQ plus community. So welcome to the show, you two. Thanks, Candice. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, really happy, really happy to have you on the show and uh, just talk more uh, about YPR's rainbow recovery, but um, just in general, kind of like recovery through the lens of somebody in the LGBTQ plus community, because I know it's a little bit different experience than, you know, someone like me may have had. So thank you so much for for being open to being on the show. Um, And with that, I think first, before we really dig into the topic, I want to get to know a little bit about the two of you. Uh, so Amanda, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about who you are today and, and what's been your experience with uh, substance use disorder in the LGBTQ plus community. Hey, everyone. I'm Amanda. Um, I'm the YPR chapter lead in Santa Barbara, California. I've been with YPR for a couple of years now. Um, and as Candace mentioned, helped start the Rainbow Recovery Initiative. Um, recovery and LGBTQ issues are both things that I'm very passionate about for both similar and different reasons. Um, I'm 27 and I've been in recovery continuously for the last uh, five years, but before that I was in and out of jails, rehabs, sober livings, um, could never quite get recovery to really stick for me. Um, so I know what that's like. You know, I know what it's like to struggle with um, substance use. I know what it's like to struggle with, you know, not being able to really get a hold on recovery. Um, but I'm really grateful, you know, these past five years that I've been able to really make that change and really invest in my own recovery and also find, you know, a job where I can help other people do the same. Um, And I can kind of get into this more a little bit later too, but I feel like my experience was a little bit interesting because I came out as bisexual after being in recovery for a couple of years. So I kind of experienced it on both sides. Um, And, you know, I think that hiding and denying that part of myself was one of the reasons why I used substances in the first place. So um, it's something that has a really special place in my heart and I'm really excited that we get to, you know, try to reach that community and provide safe spaces for that community with YPR. Wow. I just learned so much about you that I didn't know. Um, So thank you so much for uh, sharing that part of yourself with us um, at Recovery Corner. And yeah, definitely, I've got some questions uh, 
flaring up in my head, but uh, we'll kind of, yeah, I think we'll get those addressed as we get into, into the rest of the show. So thank you again for being here and thank you for spearheading this and being a part of it. Um, Yeah. And with that, uh, Catherine, tell us a little bit about yourself and your experiences. Okay. Um, So yeah, my name is Catherine and I am the Fresno chapter lead. Um, So I always knew I was interested in women from a very early age, um, like as early as maybe a child. (laughs) Um, And as I got older, um, I realized that my attraction to people didn't conform to the binary. So um, I could see myself being attracted to, and I have been attracted to people that do not, um, that are non-binary, that um, do not, uh, that are transgender, that um, do not um, identify as like cisgender. And um, in the early years of navigating my sexuality, I was not in recovery. So most of the social settings uh, where I found other people like me involved substances. Um, All of my previous partners, like literally all of them (laughs) um, were like me and and they were involved in substances. Um, And um, so throughout my early and late adolescence, I can't say that my experiences were the healthiest and, uh, especially, um, growing up as like a, a bisexual and then later like pansexual or queer, I haven't been able to really, um, pin down my, my label, I guess, <laughs> or something. Um, but, um, and a lot of my previous experiences uh, and relationships, those connections stemmed from like a false sense of intimacy, um, where the commonality we shared was the substances or the substance that we used together. Um, and as I started seeking recovery, uh, it became really difficult to find a group that fit my needs. Um, I had trouble finding therapists or recovery groups that I felt comfortable with as. Um, like being a person in um, a part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, And um, for instance, one of my previous therapists growing up assumed that my sexual identity was a result of childhood trauma um, rather than merely being a part of like what makes me, me. So um, with that, it was very invalidating to my like sexual orientation. and it made me question my identity. And, um, and then I, I had a lot of trouble finding friends um, that were a part of the community that were no longer using. So after I did get into recovery, um, I didn't know where the spaces were um, for people who were in recovery, right? That were also a part of the queer community. Um, so a lot of the like queer spaces, like queer specific spaces are um, like gay bars. And um, we don't have much outside of that, um, or at least I wasn't made aware of it. And um, yeah, so it was, it was really difficult, especially in the early days of recovery for myself, um, figuring out like how to find new friends that weren't using um, because I craved that connection with other people that were like me, but I, I was having difficulty finding it. Wow. Uh, thank you for sharing, uh, your experience too. And, um, you know, for someone like myself, it's entering into recovery was a difficult decision, but, uh, so many less barriers for me, things that I, you know, never even considered. It's so easy for me to walk into a room and, you know, find a room full of people that are like me, you know? Um, so I, I can't even really imagine what that's like when you're part of a community that's, you know, as you know, a community that maybe historically has just been marginalized and, um, pushed to the side. And so how difficult it is, uh, cause there's so much value, in finding people with similar lived experiences and how much more difficult that is, um, for somebody that is part of this population. So, uh, 
thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important that that people are aware of that that challenge um, and bring some, I don't know, just bring some education and awareness to that. Uh, and that really kind of leads nicely into my my next question, um, which maybe was somewhat answered, but um, you know, what as as the leaders with our YPR Rainbow Recovery, what really inspired you to create an LGBTQ plus specific space for YPR? I can speak on that. Um, for my own part, I think, you know, I, I came out as bisexual and it was, I struggled at first, you know, I didn't feel like I could talk about my sexuality um, with, you know, certain, in certain recovery circles. Um, and I think in, with something as, you know, vulnerable and deep and real as recovery, like we want to feel safe, we want to feel seen, right? And I realized there weren't a lot of spaces where I could feel that comfortably, you know, and I have become more comfortable with time. Um, you know, part of that is finding that comfortability within myself, I think. But I think it opened my eyes to the ways that people that are new to recovery or maybe, you know, questioning their sexuality or questioning their gender identity or, you know, whatever it is, it may be really hard to do that in certain spaces. Um, and a former San Francisco chapter lead of YPR, um, you know, we were talking about this and talking about how the LGBTQ community is disproportionately affected by substance use. Um, and we were like, you know, it'd be really great if YPR could kind of help facilitate creating that safe space that is specifically for that community. Because um, there's just, there's something really powerful about, you know, I think anyone that's in recovery knows that feeling of walking into a room and being like, these people get it, right? These people have been where I have been and they can relate to me on a level that most other people can't. And I think for the LGBTQ community, there's kind of that added level of, okay, we also want people who kind of can understand some of my struggles around sexuality or gender. Like there's another level there. Um, and, you know, that can come from people who have lived experience. It can come from allies. You know, it doesn't have to be people that are, you know, gay, trans, et cetera. But even just, you know, educated allies can help facilitate that space. Um, but I think that was, you know, our inspiration. Like we really just wanted to provide that safe space and, um, be that support. Adding on to what Amanda said, um, I learned about something in my uh, bachelor, my, my undergrad or my bachelor's degree. Um, I majored in women's gender and sexuality studies um, and um, something specific to what Amanda was saying made me think of intersectionality and how important it is as a concept um, to like look at the context of people's lives through an intersectional lens um, because as people in recovery, um, without those spaces that are safe and where we do feel seen and, and that we have similar experiences, um, it can be very alienating. And in active addiction, you're already, already alienated. You're already stigmatized. Um, so it adds that additional layer of stigmatization of alienation as a, a person who is not only seeking recovery, but they're also part of a group that is already kind of not the norm, right? And they're they're kind of ostracized within society. It's getting better, right? Like the prejudice is getting better, but at the same time, we do see it's not, right? We, we see policies passed in different states all the time that um, like don't say gay bill or something, right? Like I can't remember if that was in Florida or what, but um, we see things like that and, um, and it's hurtful. And so when we go into a space as people in recovery, we wanna see that um, the people there 
respect our journeys and they understand them and um, that we're not going to, um, you know, misspeak on someone's pronouns. And if, if somebody does misspeak there in those spaces, they are educated enough, like an educated ally to own up to that mistake right and and to take ownership over it and and to be accountable for miss saying like misspeaking someone's pronouns and um and also accepting that correction from the person um so i i feel like that's really important in these spaces and and that was a part of why i wanted to join um rainbow recovery um because somebody that is actually from my chapter um I haven't connected to them much, but um, they had said that uh, some of the 12-step groups they were a part of, um, they identified as non-binary and they didn't feel safe there um, as a result of being non-binary. Maybe they they felt like microaggressions and things like that. And um, and myself personally, I um, don't necessarily identify as non-binary I feel I feel very comfortable with like both masculine and feminine and, and kind of like sometimes neither I don't I don't really know how I feel about gender <laughs> within myself um so I guess I can kind of relate on that level but um hearing that from a, a chapter member um it just it really it struck a chord with me because I um I grew up not feeling accepted, right? Like by my family, I, I grew up like my mom would basically ground me just so I couldn't see my girlfriend. And, you know, and, and it's like, we have that, that cycle repeated um, in a different way, but it's still somewhat similar where um, kind of you receive this subtle punishment for being different than the norm. Yeah. Um, to add on to that, you know, something that I've noticed in 12 step recovery, um, and I have a lot of love and respect for 12 step recovery. That's where, you know, I was introduced to recovery, but you know, they're like their preamble that they read at the beginning of meetings says we are a group of men and women. Um, so it's like right off the bat, you're hearing this message of conform to these gender binaries. Um, which actually I think the preamble just got officially changed to we are a group of people, which is amazing. Um, yeah, that's impressive. You know, this, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. Glad to see I'm that really excited about it. progressing. <laughs> but then, you know, we still see things like women's meetings and men's meetings and, you know, I mean, we see that all over, right? Like it's not just recovery or AA or anything like that, but mm-hmm. I think it's definitely something that can make, you know, non-binary people or, you know, trans people like just feel maybe uncomfortable or out of place almost. Right. Yeah. Not knowing because if, um, yeah, if somebody uh, is trans, like identifying as a woman and feels safe, you know, would feel safe in a woman's meeting, but uh, in the more traditional, I don't know what the right word is. And you, please, if I say anything wrong, please correct me. (laughs) Um, on the show, I would love for other people to hear me be corrected (laughs) so they know. Um, but yeah, I could totally understand, uh, the fear walking into there, not knowing if, you know, the other women will, um, be as accepting, um, you know, this, this conversation, I don't know the best way to ask this, but I think for me, not everybody's like me (laughs) and I'm, and I have this maybe naive perception that can't we all just get along and like, can't we all like, I don't necessarily want to see like separation, you know, and be like siloed. And then it's just like isolating these different populations. But at the same time, you know, I've been learning, like there is benefit to this. So, um, you know, like what I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this, like, why is it important to have these like specific spaces, like, um, versus just trying to encourage everybody to be more accepting and inclusive, um, 
Although, you know, I think that there needs to be that too. Did I ask that right? I'm not. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Um, I think it's some of both, right? You know, I think like going back to the women's meetings and men's meetings, like there, I know a lot of women feel safer sharing in a women's meeting, right? Mm-hmm. And also go to, um, you know, kind of co-ed meetings or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think there's definitely space for both, you know, um, there's definitely a need for the general kind of recovery community to maybe, um, be more accepting and be more open. And maybe there needs to be more education and awareness around LGBTQ issues. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, while that is happening or until that happens, like there's, I think still a need for, I don't want to say exclusive, but Mm -hmm. maybe more private spaces Mm. um, until it is safer. Right. Or until maybe, you know, someone feels safe enough and secure enough in their own identity and recovery to enter those spaces. Right. Is there anything you'd add to that, Catherine? Yeah, I completely agree with Amanda. Um, And I also think it's important to note that, like, just because, um, like, some people are very accepting and open and, like, they're just so open and accepting of the LGBTQ plus community. But then there are others, right, that they are very against it or they Mm -hmm. are, um, they don't, believe in uh like gender pronouns and they don't like they don't believe in um the binary or the non like non-binary they're they're adamantly against these things right um so having these safe spaces where you can go into it and you know you're not going to receive any sort of prejudice Mm -hmm. it's it creates that safe space um and i've just from like different things I've heard in my own chapter because um, I facilitate um, LGBTQ plus recovery meetings uh, for Fresno State. Um, and also I work with the um, LGBTQ plus EOC Resource Center uh, in Fresno. And um, a lot of the people that I've encountered in this work, um, for instance, at meetings, um, sometimes I've had um, people that I've met that have never even been asked their pronouns, right? Like they've never, that's never even come up in conversation. Um, And they are kind of taken back by the, by the fact that in our, our meeting, like um, that's even a space where they could share. Right. Um, So I think that it's just really important because there's this awareness um, and because there's this openness and the safety in that space um, where you can't find elsewhere, unfortunately, until until things maybe are, are different. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've also seen others, um, one person in particular that I've met that um, it just it feels good as they were talking about it. It, it feels good to to meet someone that is a part of the community. Right. Like there's just this shared connection that's just like it happens immediately mm-hmm. um and and it's it's similar to like you know being a person in recovery and going into a recovery space where you just kind of have this shared experience this shared um understanding of of life right um and that's kind of how it's been described um by one of the chapter members that I have. Mm. Thanks for expanding on that. I think, uh, you know, some people don't understand. I mean, myself included when all this uh, like was first brought to my attention, I'm like, but why? Like, (laughs) that's all, like, is that earlier? Like, can we all just get along? But I mean, even I think as the, you know, I think younger generations uh, 
are really going to like change. They're going to shift the paradigm around this. It seems like, it seems like uh, younger generations are more uh, accepting and really like advocating for acceptance, which is so inspiring to see. Um, But I mean, even, I don't know, even when we do find ourselves in a world where everybody is more accepting of different populations, like I I still see the value in like sustaining, um, you know, just like traditional 12 step meetings have their men and women spaces, like for particular reasons, like, and those, you know, men and women probably also go to the other meetings too, but having that space specific um, because, well, I, I'm, I believe that a lot of people find themselves in substance use disorder because of trauma. Uh, but, you know, these different populations, they've experienced different traumas uh, that other people can't necessarily relate to. Um, especially when we talk about like, I mean, families, you know, uh, we'll probably dig into this too, as we get into some of the other questions I have for you guys. But um, yeah, I think uh, it's so comforting when people have even those like those shared negative experiences that led them to there. So then they don't feel so like isolated and alone. And that feels even like safer to be able to open up to. Um, Cause I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what it's like to um, like be in a body that feels like it isn't meant for me, you know? Uh, like I was born as a woman and that's what I've, uh, identified as, but I know that that's not what a lot of people experience, but I can't relate to that on a, on a level, uh, let alone then (laughs) icing on the cake is like entering into addiction and trying to manage that. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, I really want people to like recognize the significance of, of having these specific spaces and like celebrating them. Um, but then also like incorporating, incorporating that into our just, uh, general recovery spaces too, so that everybody's welcome. Um, so we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, this, the recovery spaces, but backing up a little bit. Um, and I think Amanda, you mentioned earlier, like the, this population is disproportionately affected by substance use disorder. Um, so I want to explore that a little bit, uh, from your experience and, uh, like as a person in recovery and as a person that's been in, in this recovery community, um, you know, how, how do you see substance use disorder impacting this community differently? Um, well, I did actually look up some data because, um, we've looked it up in the past for rainbow recovery and it was really interesting. Um, and I will note, you know, it can be kind of difficult to get exact data because the definition of the LGBTQ plus community can be very fluid. Not everyone is out, you know, what's the definition of substance use? Like there's a lot of variables there, right? But it's estimated that about 30% of the LGBTQ community struggles with substance use. And that's compared with only 9% of the general population. Wow. Um, and, you know, I think it, it sadly makes sense. You know, there's people in this community deal with homophobia, heterosexism, stigmas, um, exclusion, even violence. You know, a lot of trans and LGBTQ youth are kicked out of their homes at a young age. And, you know, a lot of that, like it leads to depression, anxiety, shame, PTSD, um, and all of that can lead to using substances to cope. And, you know, even in my experience, you know, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but I used, you know, I was hiding my sexuality for so long and like denying that part of myself. And I think that bred a lot of shame and fear and um, just not being able to live authentically. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of reasons that I use substances, but I know that that was a big contributing factor. And I'm sure that's the case for other people as well. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I mean, it's like you grow up 
in a space where you're kind of told not to be yourself. Uh, so I could totally understand how wanting to, you know, mind altering substances make us feel like not ourselves. Uh, so it's like a way to kind of escape that, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just being torn between like wanting to be yourself, but not being accepted. So trying to like mask who you are under like substances or, um, yeah, I, I can only imagine what that would be like, especially for, you know, young people, like kids, adolescents, uh, you're really trying to like come into your own and learn who you are yet. You have the world against you telling you not to be who you are and to be less of yourself. It's difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. And something Catherine mentioned earlier, um, too, you know, a lot of LGBTQ spaces are centered around drinking, Mm -hmm. um, you know, gay bars or lesbian bars or going out to clubs and parties. And, you know, I think that it is very normalized in a sense. Um, and, you know, thinking back to like back in the seventies and eighties, you know, like there were specific bars, like in New York, I'm thinking, you know, the Stonewall riots and stuff. There were specific bars that were places where trans and LGBTQ people could go and feel safe and accepted. Um, so I think that's, that can be another contributing factor. You know, it's, it's very normalized and has been very common for so long. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like as, as this conversation goes on too, I just want to like invite you, but just like hop in whenever. Um, but, uh, where was I? Um, yeah, so it's different. (laughs) It's different. Uh, all I can, all I can relate to is, uh, my difficult experiences that sort of conditioned me towards substance use disorder. But, um, I think that's something people need to note is, uh, (laughs) the very different and difficult and even like politicized, uh, challenges that this population faces. Like, it's not just like, uh, simple opinions in your community. Like these are, uh, their whole, your whole being is being challenged by the country in legislative action uh, in a lot of cases. Um, I think there's some states that are more progressive than others. Um, I don't want to pick on any of those states that are (laughs) less progressive, but I think a lot of us know uh, some of the places. Um, But yeah, so I have another we talked a little bit about it in the beginning, but um, I don't know if we want to kind of backtrack a little bit, but I had a question lined up for like why it might be difficult for, for this community to access uh, recovery support, but not just the community support, but even services. One of you mentioned earlier too, even just trying to find therapists, uh, like What's been your experience in the in the clinical sense of recovery services and um, how that might be different for this population? I can speak to that. Um, so I, I spoke a little bit on it earlier um, with my therapist, um, but that's like not the only time it happened. That was a recurring theme throughout all of my work with therapists um (laughs) so like I had the one that um kind of blamed my sexual identity um and kind of like uh imposed their um like religious beliefs on me and then like blamed my sexual identity on um childhood trauma involving another female right so um that made it so that I didn't feel safe talking about my trauma. And then I also felt invalidated about my trauma. And then I also felt invalidated about like my gender identity or not gender identity, sexual identity. And then I, I felt just, I mean, I mean, everything um, was very uncomfortable in that moment with trying to seek help and 
Um, and then I, I kind of, um, I kind of was wary of therapists from that point on. And, um, and then like later, uh, another therapist had basically, um, said that she could like work with me on, um, one thing, you know, which was like trauma involving like a guy, but she, um, basically said that my moral compass, um, knew that I shouldn't like be attracted to women. Um, yeah. And I was, and I was, uh, like, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, she literally said that in the session, that was her feedback about what I was telling her. Um, cause I, I think I had a girlfriend at the time and I was talking about that too. And so my relationship also was abusive with the girl that I was, I was dating. And then, so then, um, and then of course there were substances involved. And then like, um, even with the way that they, that people will treat like, like abuse happening in same sex relationships, right. Um, it'll be treated differently because, um, you're with another woman, right. Um, so I had even another person that was kind of like, well, you know, this, the girl that you're dating, she's not, she's not huge. Like how couldn't you fight her off or, or whatever. Right. It, but it's like abuse is abuse. Yeah. Yeah. So it does, it doesn't matter. Um, and it's, it's really, there are so many, so many different things that you might not think about. Um, if you are heterosexual and when you, if you don't have like the experience of, um, trying to find someone that you can talk to about all of these different intersections of who you are. Yeah, so that was kind of my experience in that. <laughs> Um, have you, have you been able to find a therapist that can no. work with you? Really? Not, not yet. Um, I, I found like, it's hard cause I, I'll find one that will be able to work in one area really well. Mm. Um, but then it won't like, they won't be as great in the other areas that I need to work on. Um, but I think that that's just, that that's less of speaking to like the therapist not being out there that can help me. I think it's yeah. more of those negative experiences kind of made me afraid to keep trying. Mm. Um, right. After having so many experiences like that, where like my trauma was invalidated or my um, experience as like a queer woman was invalidated because of my trauma. Like I just didn't, I didn't trust it anymore. Man, that, that breaks my heart. And it, it makes me wonder though, if there's like networks out there, like networks of providers, um, specific for, you know, different, uh, communities, like not just LGBTQ, but like people of color, people that have had these like different experiences that are, um, yeah, not as, I don't want to say common, because I'm sure it's common that that happens, but um, yeah, because like I was looking for therapists last year and I would go to psychology today and they all have bios. So at least I could like get a little sense of who they were. Uh, you know, I'm not super religious, so I'm not looking for any like spiritual counselor or like uh, religious counselors, you know, and try to like steer away from that uh, type of thing. Um, but yeah, do you know of any resources like network platforms that help connect LGBTQ plus to appropriate providers that can um, be sensitive to this sort of thing? I actually don't. So typically I'll go through um, resource centers that are more well-versed. Um, so for instance, the LGBTQ plus resource center, um, they, I, I trust them in, in knowing providers um, because they, they work specifically with that population. Um, but I believe they only have um, the location in Fresno. So I don't, I don't know if it would be applicable to other areas. Mm. Um, and then I also, I mean, I look, in the bios as well. And I, I think that that can be helpful. Um, 
because not complete though it's you know not complete yeah (laughs) it's not like they're gonna just come out and say like hey we are very anti yeah 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 that's that's true and then um I try to pick up resources along the way with the work that I'm doing um so I'll try to find um different like treatment programs that are specific to the LGBTQ plus community um but then it can also be hard to find treatment programs that are also affordable, right? Or that accept Medi-Cal, right? So I mean, because mm-hmm. it's already hard enough to find treatment programs that are for low-income individuals, but mm-hmm. um, having an availability of options, then, you know, the, right. that's just hard. But even that's tough. I don't know if Medi-Cal is like Medicaid here in Colorado, but like the... Um, they have the bar set pretty low for what you can qualify for. Like you, you pretty much either have to choose like a livable wage or medical care. And it's like, if you make, I think more than $1,300 a month, like you no longer qualify in Colorado, which like if you're making $1,500 a month, like it's not like you're <laughs> going to be able to just magically afford healthcare at that <laughs> yeah. increase, you know? So it's like, it, that's, you know, yeah, it's a great resource when people qualify, and I'm so glad it exists, but it does seem like they need to kind of um, raise that minimum or the maximum there uh, so more people can qualify and actually get services. Yeah, actually, in um, California, they have something called Covered California. I don't know when that came about, but um, mm-hmm. it it makes insurance so much more affordable. Um, I don't make a whole lot of money, but like I I'm able to afford it. Um, and, and also I have so many different options for providers. So it, it oh, really, wow. yeah. That's yeah, really cool. Yeah. You have to put that in the show notes just for yeah. our California folks. Cause that's great information to have. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. And, and then you get, um, like, you get access to Anthem Blue Cross. You get Anthem, um, access to like, uh, what is it? Um, Blue Shield of California. Like some of these name brand, like big, big mm-hmm. brands of insurance companies and um, yeah. like legitimate coverage. So yeah. Wow. yeah. Well, cool. Thank you for sharing about that and, <clears throat> and about the resource in Fresno, you know, anybody listening from Fresno, like the uh, resource center, LGBTQ resource center, um, which I'd like to think like all communities have something similar to that. So uh, wherever you live, you could probably Google search an LGBTQ plus resource center if you haven't already done that. Um, and people there can probably help guide you in a good direction to find some providers, hopefully, but I feel like there should be an app for that, <laughs> you know, like a place where you can kind of go find uh, providers and therapists or, or something, some sort of simplified network. Um, Cause it's so important that yeah, people feel safe, not only in a recovery community, but in a clinical, like with your therapist, like, uh, and I'm, it baffles me that the experiences that you have had, uh, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I worked as a peer recovery coach though with, um, you know, so I, I had therapist colleagues and from my understanding, like you don't bring any of your, your personal stuff into those sessions, you know, like they need to be very objective. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm going for, um, a master's in some sort of counseling. I I haven't Mm -hmm. exactly decided yet um, and yeah, from everything I've learned so far, you're not supposed to do that. And a lot of what <laughs> I've seen in therapy sessions has been wrong. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's frustrating. Uh, is there, a, I don't know, can you like report somebody for that? Probably, but I, I wouldn't want to. <laughs> I, I mean, bad. I like, I mean, I, I don't know. yeah well I mean no it's not fun I mean I've worked in managerial roles I don't like writing people up but like you know that's detrimental to your health and not just you but you know like other other folks that might have had similar experiences and um yeah it's it's completely inappropriate for somebody to bring their own personal agenda into a professional uh setting like that so 
I implore anybody to have that has that experience to, you know, make a report and, you know, not that that person necessarily shouldn't ever practice again, but they definitely should probably be required to take some training and not continue that behavior. Um, I don't know, but yeah, cause we got to say stuff sometimes in order to put an end to it. It might not do anything. I mean, you know, it might go unheard, but it's definitely going to go unheard if we don't say anything. So I don't know if that happens to you again. I, I implore you, I implore you to, you know, complain. (laughs) Yeah. I, I'll, I'll think about it. I'm, I have a hard time with like speaking up sometimes. Um, I think that's something I need to work on in therapy. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, advocate for yourself, you know, and it's hard to do, especially, you know, from your experiences, just, uh, being told not to be yourself. I don't know you that well, but I can imagine that there have been people, um, challenging you and, you know, not wanting you to speak up for yourself. So, um, but you are a strong, courageous person and, uh, you know, I guess sometimes if you're like trying to encourage yourself to do it, it's kind of imagine like, what's the worst thing that can happen, but what's the best thing that can happen and maybe compare and contrast and that might help like make it seem easier. If yeah. the best case scenario far outweighs the worst case scenario, then go for it. Swing for yeah. the fences. <laughs> yeah. um, I love that. Good advice. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I have a hard time speaking up for myself sometimes too. Uh, but through recovery, I've definitely learned to be a better self-advocate. And um, not everybody's going to like what I have to say. And they might disagree. And you know, they'll have feedback for me and I'll, I'll take their feedback. And, um, you know, if it's something I'm really passionate about, I'm not going to let it go, (laughs) but, um, I don't know. Sometimes it's just like learning how to have that, uh, right level. Uh, we don't want to like yell at each other that never gets anywhere, but trying to have kind of like a calm, uh, discussion, even if it's a disagreement, I think it can be done calmly. So, um, those I think the hard part about it actually was that I was like a minor. Oh um, gosh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, cause I, I most <clears throat> of the experiences happened with therapists that I had, like when I was uh, like a teenager. Well, yeah. I mean, that brings up like a whole nother issue though, is that, yeah, um, there are teenagers, minors out there that are, um, kind of coming to terms with their identities uh, where maybe their parents and their peers are not accepting and then they go to therapy and they can't even get the validation from their therapist. Um, you know, so like that's something that (laughs) needs to be brought to the forefront too, I think is how do we help? Yeah. How do we help young people like find the support they need? Because the support they get is probably, very influenced by their parents. So if their parents have their own agenda and don't want um, to see their kids like follow through with this, uh, I don't know the right word, way to say that, but uh, like a more wanna... progressive. Yeah. Um, well, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, how, how do young people, adolescents and minors like get, get the appropriate services that they need when they're sort of under, um, under their parents' supervision. And maybe, maybe they're fortunate to have really accepting parents that want to get them connected to the right places. But I mean, I've heard the horror stories of some of those, uh, what are those camps called? Um, conversion camps. Yeah. Yeah. The conversion camps. That's mm-hmm. insanity. <laughs> uh, I don't, and, and a, like traumatizing and abusive, uh, um, I don't know how I'm getting down this tangent, but like there are there are like really scary things out there that are just yeah very anti LGBTQ um, to the point where they're so afraid of this dis uh, this I how do I say this right uh, they're so afraid 
of the reality that their kids are experiencing with their gender identity. They're afraid it's going to hurt them, that they actually put them in harm's way just so that, you know, they conform to these like binary um, genders. (laughs) I'm probably not saying that right, but (laughs) I think you guys are picking up what I'm laying down. Yeah. Well, and I think that also, you know, it brings up the point of we need to be advocating not just for ourselves, but for other people, you know, people who maybe can't advocate for themselves. Um, right. This was just making me think of I have a, a friend who's a trans man and he recently moved into a men's sober living home. And, you know, he was really nervous about being in an all male environment because, you know, in his experience, cisgender or heterosexual men have not been the most accepting or understanding of his gender. Um, and, you know, since being there, he's experienced some transphobia, you know, some comments and kind of being excluded and just, you know, obviously it makes me really sad. Um, but I have another friend in the same house who is gay and non-binary and they have been able to advocate for him and, you know, kind of, I don't want to say protect him, but like, you know, kind of speak out on their behalf and call out people who are acting in, you know, transphobic ways. Um, So I think, you know, advocating can look different for everyone, right? You know, that's just kind of a smaller scale example, but even just doing those little things of, you know, pointing out homophobic or transphobic comments, um, it makes a big difference. All right. Well, that starts to kind of uh, allude to my next question too. Um, talk a little bit about the problems and I don't think we're going to arrive at the exact solution or the end all solution to this, but um, I don't know how, how can we make recovery more accessible and inviting to this population? I think a big thing um which we've already touched on a little bit, but uh, not using gender specific language. Um, So, you know, for example, changing men and women to people or, you know, creating kind of all-inclusive meetings. Um, I think that's a good place to start sharing pronouns as Catherine talked about. Um, We had someone come to one of our first rainbow recovery meetings and he, he got really emotional. Like, you know, at the beginning of the meeting, we asked people to, you know, introduce themselves and share their pronouns if they're comfortable. And a little ways into the meeting, he was getting really emotional. And then he shared, he was like, no one has ever asked me my pronouns before. Like I've never been able to really speak them out loud or share them. And that was just such a powerful moment. You know, it's like such a simple thing can have such a huge impact on someone. Um, and, you know, I think even like introducing ourselves, like using our pronouns so not necessarily asking, but just kind of opening that door of, Hey, these are my pronouns. And if you want to share yours, you are more than welcome. You know, that can kind of be a good place to start because people aren't always comfortable, you know, just sharing their pronouns. Um, but yeah, those are two things that I can think of. Um, what, what do you have, Catherine? Um, I think, I mean, cause I've, I've heard a lot of similar things that you have, um, especially in that story you're sharing, Amanda, um, kind of going back to, I think I said this earlier, but, um, a lot of my, um, chapter members that have been coming to the LGBTQ plus, uh, recovery meetings, they've never had the chance to say their pronouns or they've never been asked. Um, And that is like a really emotional moment. Um, Or even I have um, some chapter members that, for instance, like uh, as you were speaking about like housing, they um, will not disclose their pronouns because they're worried about, um, you know, having some experience of microaggressions or um, like prejudice, uh, discrimination, as a result of it. So um, it's just, it's, it's really 
really sad when you see that. Even for instance, um, I know of, um, I haven't worked with her a lot, but there, there's a trans woman at um, the women's shelter that I work at. And um, from what I've heard from some of my other chapter members, um, she receives a lot of negative um, treatment from some of the clients that are there. And, and it's just, I think it's so important to have these spaces because they are, um, they're fit for people that are competent around the LGBTQ plus community, right? And they're, and they are um, sometimes by people, for people that are a part of this community, right? So like there's um, this shared knowledge of pronouns and of, um, and even sometimes, you know, we get to have the opportunity to educate other people that have no, no knowledge of the LGBTQ plus community. I, I have one uh, chapter member that has, um, like no connection to the LGBTQ plus community, but he's learned so much and he's so open to it from being a part of our queer meetings. So it's like he, and he's, he comes to them like every single week and he's so supportive of everyone that shared um, like whether or not they're, they're agender or they're non-binary, like he's so supportive and he is a cisgender straight, you know, guy and, and it's, it's just incredible to see that. And I feel like these um, spaces that are specific to the LGBTQ plus community, because they're focused on, um, on competency around these identities, um, I think it really cultivates um, this competency in more people, right? And then they can continue to spread that knowledge further. Yeah, I think education and awareness are huge. Um, like Candace, I appreciate you so much for being willing to, you know, open the space and ask these questions. And, you know, like you said earlier, like, you know, correct me if I say anything that's, you know, wrong or, you know, offensive or anything like that. Like, that's huge. Just being open to learning and open to, um, you know, hearing if someone says, hey, that was maybe offensive or that made me uncomfortable, like being open to hearing that and, you know, making those changes is so huge. Right. I saw a thing a friend of mine posted on social the other day that I, I'd have to look at it. Uh, it had some tips on how to receive feedback when you're corrected, corrected uh, with relation to like pronouns and uh, gender identity. And it mentioned on this one pager not to apologize um, because it's, you know, it's not the other person's job to make us feel better. Oh, dog just pulled my computer. <laughs> it's not the other person's job to make uh, us feel better, you know, um, and rather just like thanking people for the correction um, and helping us all become better educated. I mean, this is, it's, it's a new thing, uh, really within the last several years, it seems like, uh, that there's more attention and more work going into the direction of like, um, gender identity and pronouns and making sure that everybody is welcome and accepted. So, uh, I think it's easy for people to get on the defense when somebody's like, you're wrong, <laughs> but it's not, you know, it needs to not be taken like, oh, you're wrong. It's just like, hey, this is uh, new. We're all learning. So I'm just sharing knowledge with you. And so say thank you <laughs> instead of I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I and really I think. Love that. Sorry. Man. And I think, you know, you're good. Um, <laughs> I think it's kind of, you know, we're, we've all been raised in a heteronormative society, right? Like that's um, the majority of the norm, the mainstream, whatever you want to call it. Um, and on some level, we all have some internalized homophobia, I think. Um, I know that I do and it still comes out and I don't like it, but, you know, I'm working to change it. Um but I think recognizing that is huge too. You know, we can make mistakes and it doesn't mean that we're bad people or we're, you know, not open-minded or accepting. We are a product of the society that we've grown up in. And I think as long as we're honestly doing the work, 
to learn and change and grow. You know, it's not something to feel ashamed about um, at all. Catherine, are you going to say something too? I don't really have anything to add. I I agree. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, we are almost out of time, uh, but I want to ask both of you. I've got one last question. Um, I want to know from your personal perspective, uh, what does recovery mean to you? I'll answer first. Um, this is, a, feels like such a broad question. Um, I'll try it to is. keep it short though. <laughs> it means a lot of things. Depends on right. the day, right? <laughs> I think in the broadest sense to me, recovery means freedom. Um, it means being able to make choices that I know will help me and not hurt me. Um, it means having a community of people around me that I know will accept me where I'm at and support me no matter what. It means not waking up miserable and exhausted every day and going to sleep um, desperate and hopeless every night. Um, and it means learning to love myself fully and love the people around me better. Beautiful answer. Thank you so much. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, so recovery to me is holistic. So um, I don't think it, it started and ends with being in recovery for um, substances. I, I think it, it includes everything, right? Like um, trauma. Um, Cause I, I feel like my substance use was a symptom of something deeper, of a deeper problem that resulted from trauma. Um, so I, I feel like it was more of the symptom for me rather than like the actual uh, diagnosis or, or cause. Um, so I, I feel like looking at all of the, the pieces um, that have been hurt or broken um, and then seeking recovery for all of those pieces is, um, recovery for me. Thank you. Beautiful. So true. I mean, uh, there's a lot, <laughs> it's not just like putting down the drink of the drug. There's a lot of digging that has to be done. Uh, and then like repotting, <laughs> there's a lot to do. So well, awesome. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I think this was a great episode that was eye opening, um, for a lot of people that may be unfamiliar. Um, and hopefully, uh, folks that are part of this community enjoy this episode too. Uh, and you know, also we didn't spend a ton of time talking about rainbow recovery outside of the fact that the two of you, uh, spearhead that, um, do you want to tell our audience where, like, how do they get involved with rainbow recovery YPR? So, uh, I don't know the, um, the Facebook or Instagram by heart. Amanda, do you? <laughs> yes. Our, so our Instagram is YPR underscore rainbow recovery. Um, and I believe the Facebook group is under our YPR main page um, under groups. It should be under there. Right. But YPR rainbow recovery for both. Nice. Uh, and I'll make sure to link those in our show notes. So those of you listening should be able to just scroll down and click, uh, click those links, um, find them on Facebook. Uh, I also believe if you navigate to the young people in recovery webpage calendar of events, um, they'll find that uh, your meeting, you host a meeting once a month on Mondays, the last Monday. Yeah. It's month? last Monday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, what time is that at? 3 p.m. PST and then 6 p.m. EST. Awesome. And those are virtual. So no matter, yes. uh, these two are in California, but you could be in New York, 
you could be somewhere else in the world um, and you can attend that meeting. Um, so yeah, definitely if you're on social media, like and follow them on Facebook and Instagram um, to keep up with what's going on and, um, and get plugged in. Um, and I would love to see more uh, like satellite rainbow recoveries pop up around the country. So if anybody's listening and wants to get a rainbow recovery uh, chapter started in your community, um, let us know. Uh, you can email community at youngpeopleinrecovery.org um, or just get connected to these two through the social media platforms we mentioned. Um, but lovely. Uh, before we sign out, is there anything else that you'd want to add or um, maybe any other resources that might be helpful for people listening today? So you can also find a lot of um, LGBTQ plus specific meetings on um, my Fresno Instagram. So it's um, YPR Fresno CA. That's just the handle. So awesome. I will plug that in the show notes too. So thank you for adding that. Thank you. All right, everybody. Once again, I am your host, Candace Rose. And as I mentioned earlier, this is my final episode at Recovery Corner as I transition away from young people in recovery. Uh, bittersweet. Um, I really appreciate all the guests that have been on the show and everybody that's listened. Um, and I'm really looking forward to when season three picks back up, uh, hopefully in the fall. So I'm sure everybody will get notified of that when the time comes. But um, as always here at YPR, we do recover and we are in your corner. Thank you for listening.